and welcome to Moral of Story podcast. I am your host, Caitlin Vagadis. In the last episode, I just did a brief summary of some of the things that I've gone through with my own journey of mental health. And so in this narrative, I will be discussing a few of the things that led up to suicidal thoughts and worsening depression. Uh, in the last episode, I did not get a chance to thank Erin Clooney for allowing me to use the mic that I'm using for this recording. She uses the mic and she's helped me a lot of, she's helped me with a lot of other things that related to this podcast because she does a lot with her own podcast called Coffee House Theater Company. That podcast is, describes a little bit of uh, theater experiences and tips and it also gives reviews of other mu- musicals. They'll do interviews. So if you have an interest in musical theater, I highly encourage checking out their podcast. And Aaron's already corrected me on my grammar of the last episode where I said for their to-do instead of a-do. It is a new episode, but I will be probably just as illiterate in this one. So I apologize for that and thank you for bearing with me so far. But uh, without further ado, let's begin. It was my sophomore year of high school when the years of self-criticism, negativity, and self-loathing took a toll on me for the worst. See, in the years prior, my mindset and what I would later discover to be anxiety disorder and depression had made several periods of my life rather difficult, despite the fact that overall, my life was rather simple and easy, as it was for many children my age. However, in my sophomore year, I encountered several situations and failures that would upset anyone, and my perception of life had inhibited my ability to overcome any tribulation. I was 16, and some of my closest friends were getting their first boyfriends. We had started drinking, and we just got our license, or were in the process too. And we had begun to hang out with the boys more and more every weekend. We were irresponsible and ill-tongued, just as many teenagers are. All of these came together to create waves of drama and backstabbing within our friends group, and each new wave increased in size and energy. We bashed each other for who they were dating or predicting how long they would last, vented about what someone did while they were drunk, complained about the rumors people were spreading, and found nearly anything to hold against one another. My best friend was always upset with someone or someone was upset with her. We used to vent to each other for hours in my car that would be parked in her driveway since I was often not allowed in the house. When I would go inside, I would be practically a part of her family. I ate dinner with them and helped her sister make decorations for her wedding. Other times, while it was warmer, we would go on walks around town and talk, and it would often make no difference. When someone would confront us with a text, we screenshotted it and sent them to each other. Nothing we said ever got back to the others unless someone would join the conversation and fill us in on all the other things they were saying about us. And we would get upset and that person would report back to the others about the things that we said about them. It was becoming common to receive texts from my friends, long paragraphs cursing and chewing me out for backstabbing and being a terrible friend. And it was difficult not to take it to heart. I was hated and I knew it, but what often upset me was that many of the things I was accused of saying were actually being said by my best friend at the time. Meanwhile, Tony would message me in private chats almost weekly attacking me for things said in the group chat. And it was nearly impossible to overlook. But he had the most support from the group, and so it didn't exactly matter what he said to me. As time would go on, it would stop being private attacks, but humiliation directly on the chat, as he attacked my best friend and me for everyone to see. And no one said anything about it. 
but that is not the only thing that progressed quickly for the worst. I was overworked. On a typical day, I would go to school, and a couple hours a week, I would attend a meeting at lunch, then continue with school with no study halls, then head to soccer practice. This often left me with enough time to get picked up at home, eat, possibly take a shower, then head to band practice. However, other days I would have a game, and then the second I would get off the bus, I would run into the band room and grab my instrument to get a few run-throughs of the band show. By that time, I would pack up my quint and arrive home to work on homework, and it would be 10 or 11 at night. However, it could be later nights because our soccer games at times could be an hour away. We were from a small rural area with very few high school girl soccer teams. Then on the weekends, I would have to work at the big shop and would have soccer games. But to break it down down further, all these things I enjoyed doing, but very few of these activities did I enjoy attending. Halfway through my freshman year, I began to take after-school lessons to practice playing quint toms and playing a song or two during the pep band. I spent any hour in the spring of that year practicing on my own, playing along with the recordings to be sure that I was playing it correctly. As a result, I was given the opportunity to play the quints officially during the marching band season, which was an opportunity I gladly took. However, of all three quints in the band, I was the youngest and the least experienced. Therefore, I made the most mistakes. Every mistake, misstep, or wrongly timed note would be met by the glares of a few handful of people in the band, which made me panic, blank, and fall further behind in the music, to the point that I was too overwhelmed to play. Then they would whisper among themselves after practice, knowing full well I could hear them and discuss every fault. They would complain that I should not have my instrument, that I never show up to practice on time because I had soccer games that went late on the days of practice. During school, we would have FFA meetings during lunch. However, they became very easy for me to forget even though I created reminders on my phone and on my hand. As the school year progressed, the officer team created their own group chat in which its only purpose was to complain about me and my older sister who were on the team and discuss how awkward and unfit we were to be on the FFA officer team. Even though out of the group of nine of us, we were both the most active members of the organization. In reality, they just did not like us. Yet how often I would receive the passive-aggressive remarks that were all but passive, the secretive manner of the new group chat seemed a little unnecessary. After school, I would attend soccer, in which I enjoyed playing but never felt welcome on the team. I knew full well that I was not the greatest player. However, I was often treated as if I made the mistakes on purpose, much like the treatment I received from my peers at band. Furthermore, unlike the band, I did not have any friends on the team and I was never a very talkative or outspoken person. On Saturday nights, when the soccer teams were done, I would hang out with friends that were rarely happy with each other. Furthermore, the boys had taken up smoking, and the girls I hung around would come to join even if they did not participate. However, I did not choose to come along. It was not something I wanted to indulge in, and so I would stay home or hang out with only a select group of our friends that were not smoking. Other days, we would hang around and we would drink in someone's basement. But the thrill of sneaking around alcohol created even more tension with anyone that was too talkative or did anything remotely suggesting that they had been drinking, which was fairly often. However, there began to form a developing pattern on who they would forgive and who they would not. I often found that me and Nikki to be the latter, not because of the severity of what we did, but because of the cliques and the outcasting nature of 16-year-old girls. Around the same time in the fall, I began working at a cafe bakery in the town over on Sundays. Just as I was quiet on my team, I was quiet around my new co-workers. As time would go on, they would bluntly talk about me when I was standing next to them. 
It was it was always in a joking manner to get me to talk. Nevertheless, it was embarrassing, and some of the older coworkers began to pick up on this tactic and use it to talk about me when I was making mistakes. Furthermore, I hated working out front because I was uncomfortable around people I did not know. As if all of these accumulating causes for the deterioration of my mental health were not enough, the results and effects of anxiety and depression started pouring out on top of the already crippling weight on my shoulders of feeling constantly unwanted, overwhelmed, and overworked. Between all the time spent on extracurricular activities, I was losing time needed to complete homework and losing meals and sleep necessary to keep my grades up. I began forgetting assignments, falling behind, and becoming easily flustered. One day after forgetting one assignment, my teacher called me out in front of the entire class and docked my grade accordingly. Suddenly, the feelings of doom settled in and I began to realize that it was nearly impossible this close to the end of the quarter to bring my grades back up considering the previous poor grades I was receiving. I realized the dream of valedictorian, with how close the top two were in our class, was quite possibly out of reach just because of that one late assignment. However, with all the disapproval I faced throughout my years in middle school and high school, I had always relied so heavily on things such as my grades to prove that there was something worth it about me. I had just lost the one thing that carried the most weight as to prove I was enough, something to prove that I was much more than the quiet, awkward, plain girl that was no good at sports, no good at band, and failed to do anything right, and was losing friends so fast she could not keep a track of what argument they were on today. A girl who was always one step behind at best. It was just one little late assignment, and somehow I crumbled to pieces. Upon hearing the bell, I left the classroom, barely holding the tears in my eyes during the class and barely breathing or talking by the time I reached the office to talk to the counselor. She tried her best to help and allowed me to catch my breath, but when she suggested emailing the teacher, I began to panic. I knew that it would look like I was blaming the teacher for a missed assignment that was entirely my fault, but the problem was so much bigger. But I never got to catch my breath that second time to tell her what was wrong, and someone had an appointment coming up for scheduling, so I left afraid of what the email would mean for me. The following day, the teacher glared at me for the entire class and pulled me aside, asking if I was going to have a problem with her teaching methods. For a week, she would eye me walking into the class, visibly upset. The same glare I would get if I talked to my friends, so I kept my head down. If I did not understand an assignment, I knew not to ask questions. I just kept my head down. I had often noticed my grades being much lower on writing assignments, although it had been a strong suit of mine in the past, but I kept my head down. At this point, I did not sleep at night. In the dark, I would begin to succumb into the thoughts of every mistake I made, all the whispers about me I overheard, and frantically calculating my grades, and I would not fall asleep until the tears drained me of my energy completely. Often I would go to bed early, with the hopes that I would be asleep before my sisters would go to bed and overhear me crying. I came home so late on most days that it was not uncommon for me to only to eat supper two or three days of the week, but it hardly mattered because I was never hungry anyways, except there would be practices while I would be marching the heaviest instrument in the band when I felt so weak. I could barely keep going. My muscles in my back and my hands would cramp and I would fall behind in the music. The disapproval poured in and I barely could hold myself together, both physically and mentally. The stress, the lack of sleep, the lack of nutrition and dehydration for several months, beginning from the previous spring until the fall, began to take its toll on my body. Within that time, I had lost one-third to a half of my hair's volume that was falling out by the roots, and it never fully regained its thickness. I began going to the doctor, in which they tested my blood and suggested that it was most likely hormone imbalances. 
and it was dismissed. No one thought to suggest that it may be anxiety, other than my sister who was driving me to the doctor who simply suggested that I should stop caring so much. Then it happened for the first time. All the things that kept me together, my most internal structure, failed catastrophically all over an argument I had with Tony. I don't even remember the subject, but after meeting up with our friends to go out for New Year's Eve Eve, I suddenly felt so fed up with pretending to be okay and then being in an argument with my friends every three seconds, and I was exhausted from being called a bitch, triggered, and being told everyone would be happier if I just left them alone. I had started crying uncontrollably behind the barn at the party and started texting someone in band about how I wanted to end it. I was done and I did not want to see the new year only to repeat all the same feelings of being in everyone's way. I started thinking about ways to end it, even poisoning myself with bleach when I got home. But then I felt so guilty and so stupid and ridiculous because I felt that even in death, when my friends found out, it would just be one more thing they would mock me for amongst themselves. Furthermore, there was a large part of me that still wanted to live, so I promised myself that I would never go through with it. I had caused a scene that day, but I passed it off as the drinking, my best to deny that there was any bit of truth in the fact that I really did mean it when I said that I wanted everything to be over. It was embarrassing because in the drunkenness of the moment, I was not articulating anything, and no one knew what was upsetting me. I did not know how to explain that it was everything. School, band, soccer, being with family, being with friends, socializing, being alone, all the things I hated and all the things I once enjoyed. From that moment forward, I wish I could say that I turned it around, that with the promise to keep my life, that I made some changes to the people that I was surrounding myself with. And I can say a few things did change. And for a while, the change, as little as it was, was fine until it turned sour and vile. I had my license now for a few months. Marching band ended. Crescent player practices for Mary Poppins began. Soccer was done, and later track had started. But other things had changed by mid-March. I had begun talking to my friends less and less. I stopped talking about them, but I had also stopped talking to them more and more as track and crescent players progressed. I was tired of accepting the blame, but I began to do so quietly. Much like dealing with my English teacher early in the fall, I learned to keep my head down, stay quiet, and learn to take the beating, yet never faking the time needed to heal from it. I began separating myself from my best friend because I was tired of always talking behind the backs of others and the drama it would bring me into. Unfortunately, that meant I lost the people I talked to the most to get through the hardest of times. I realized my best friend was upset with the distancing. They all were, but I let it go. I made the mistake to believe that I was healing, when in reality I was just blocking out and ignoring the problems. Finally, it dawned to me what I had done. I had finalized the later decision of eliminating me from the group entirely. Okay, so to begin, I would like to talk a little bit about mind traps instead of kind of going over the symptoms of depression. Since I know like when I first started going to counseling, we had like a group session to start off and they just kind of went over some of the mind traps that you can get yourself into and how to think of things in a different light. And so I'd kind of like to go over that just in case like people are in a situation in which they don't have depression, but they're making a situation rougher for themselves because of the way that they think about things. This is a, just a good way to recognize some of the negative thoughts 
and how to replace them. Since I think that's one of the first steps for like taking care of yourself and kind of like that self-care aspect. Uh, I got this uh, list of mind traps. Let me double check the name of the website, mindsethealth.com. And the very first one is mind reading. So what they explained it as, this is a trap that happens when you believe that you know what other people are thinking and assume what they think is like the worst of us. So after I have a conversation with someone, I would walk away and I'd be like, oh my gosh, they probably think I'm so awkward or they're gonna be talking behind my back. It's, you don't know what they're actually thinking, but you make assumptions and beat yourself up about it. Uh, the second one would be fortune telling, which I should probably say now, some of these mind traps have different names depending on what website you go to, or if you go to counselors, sometimes they'll bring up these mind traps and they'll just call them different things. So I'm gonna explain a little further into like what they are. So uh, fortune telling is similar to mind reading. It's when you always predict that the future is gonna turn out for the worst, rather than giving some hope that perhaps things would work out or that there's a positive outcome for certain things. Some people would also call this prophesizing. For an example, you might think, oh, I know I'm gonna fail this exam or for my example, it's not, in, I didn't mention it in this episode necessarily. It'll be talked about in the next one. I always felt like I knew I was gonna lose my varsity spot in pole vault. And so I told myself that I was gonna lose it before I actually did. The next mind trap listed is black and white thinking, which the website states, this is a trap that occurs when we only look at situations in terms of one extreme or the other. A situation is either good or bad, success or failure. There is no middle ground. So for me, this was like my, the valedictorian and salutatorian spot. I told myself that if I didn't have those, that meant that I didn't matter or I wasn't enough or I failed. In reality, my grades were still good. I know when uh, English, my grades fell from like a little below, I want to say it was like a 96.5% was the final grade, but that kind of fell short of what the A plus was, which I needed to get the valedictorian or salutatorian spot. And so I just beat myself up about it because yeah, it was good, but it wasn't good enough. And if it wasn't perfect, it was, it was a failure essentially. And uh, since I failed, that meant like I was a failure. And so kind of getting in that mind spot where um, it's all good or it's all bad can be really dangerous. Even if it, you're thinking like, oh, this is all good. The second one thing kind of doesn't go the way you want it to. That's when you can kind of start thinking of it as like this all bad perspective instead. And that turnaround can be really uh, difficult for your mindset. The next one would be filtering where uh, you only need to pay attention to the negative aspects rather than looking at the whole picture. For example, I don't know if I mentioned it in this episode or not. I kind of record the narratives at a separate time than like the reflections, but I got a gold rating in my uh, officer position um, in the FFA at the state level. That didn't really matter to me because a lot of the people that I was on the officer team with kind of made me feel as if I couldn't do my job or I was like inadequate in my job. All the success that I had in my position or through the FFA did not matter because in my mind, I was just this failure. 
which is kind of similar to that black and white thinking. And I think a lot of these like mind traps kind of go hand in hand where if you're filtering things, you're probably also doing black or white. Um, the next one is catastrophizing, which I kind of mentioned as one of the psychological symptoms in the introduction episode. They state that this trap involves imagining the worst possible thing that is about to happen and predicting that you won't be able to cope with it when in reality the worst case scenarios usually never happen and even if it did, you'd probably be able to cope. So this was kind of like my idea that if I wasn't the valedictorian then I was nothing and I couldn't cope and then in the next episode uh, I will be talking a little bit about the my experiences with pole vault. And pole vault kind of came to this point where it was, if I couldn't even do that, then I couldn't do anything. Because I had so many setbacks beforehand that I kind of put that one as the last straw. And so if it was, like, if I were to fail, then I wasn't going to be able to cope with it. That was it. I was just done. And so that was one of the things that kind of relate to catastrophizing. The example that they give is, like, if you're going to fail a test, you're going to get kicked out of school or be disowned by your parents, even though despite that one test, you might still be a good student and you're probably not going to be kicked out or disowned, even if you had like a lot of bad grades before that. Uh, the next one would be overgeneralization in which they say uh, overgeneralization is when you conclude that a single negative event is actually a part of a series of unending negative events. Uh, the example they give is if you have one bad date, that means that you're never gonna find love or you have a relationship that didn't work out and therefore you're gonna like die alone or something like that. But um, it's just like, you take one negative event and you apply it constantly. So if I had like a bad meet, for example, uh, I would just kind of generalize that I'm just no good at pole vault. Or if I had a bad grade on an, a writing or an assignment, and then that just means that I'm just not a good student. And so uh, I think I did a lot of this with our friends too. Like the way they treated me was not always a result of something that I did. A lot of it kind of has to do with like, we're teenagers and so we're not the most mature and we can be a little angsty and stuff. I would just generalize that I deserved it and that this would keep happening because I don't deserve any like other treatment. So that was like my experiences with overgeneralizing a little bit. Uh, the next one would be labeling, which is an extreme form of generalization. And it's when you attach like a negative label to yourself. For example, like I am a failure or I fail that, instead of saying like I failed that one time, it's like I fail every time. And if you were to say like I did get involved in the gossip and they're mad at something I actually did say, instead of being like I made that one mistake, I would generalize or label myself as like a terrible friend. And so and then when you carry those labels around, that's what you kind of use to define yourself. And it can kind of create this really poor self-esteem, which can make it really hard to overcome later situations and like struggles when you kind of believe that you deserved it or this is just a result of who you are. Personalization is a distortion where you believe that everything others do or say 
is some kind of direct personal reaction to something that you said or done. I'll talk about this in the next episode a little bit. I had a, I don't want to say relationship because we really weren't in a relationship, but uh, it didn't work out. And when they started ghosting me, I thought it was something that I said. And the reason why they were ignoring is because of something I did or like, I think that's actually the example they give. They said like, oh, my boyfriend is upset. That means I must've done something wrong. When really it could be a result of something else that they're going through or something completely unrelated. And so if you kind of constantly believe that you deserve the things that are coming for you or that it was direct result of something that you did, it can kind of like add to that poor self-esteem. And you just need to like recognize like, what other causes could have been rather than just blaming yourself for everything. Should statements or shouldn't statements, they kind of go hand in hand, or uh, if something didn't go the way you wanted, you kind of set back on things that you can't really control, like, oh, I should have done this. Or if you don't like your weight, you're like, I should diet. And you like guilt trip yourself all the time for doing things that you that really aren't that harmful or are really negative towards yourself. And so should statements are just kind of guilt tripping yourself. And it's similar to like that black and white thinking, like, uh, let's see what the example they gave. Um, it's how you shouldn't, shouldn't behave. And so when your expectations fall short, we feel disappointed, frustrated, anxious, and even angry with ourselves. We might think of these shoulds and shouldn'ts as the rules are helping to motivate you, but in reality, they end up preventing you from taking meaningful steps towards improving your life. It's like having these ironclad rules and when they don't work out, that, and that can like really damage your mindset a little bit because you're doing these should and shouldn't statements to regain control of the situation. And so when it doesn't work out and then you feel like really out of control with it or like you have to like find this next should or shouldn't statement, to like fix everything when really life is just kind of imperfect. Emotional reasoning, uh, the example they gave, if I feel stupid and boring, then I must be stupid and boring. So it's like trying to validate your emotions with like blaming yourself a little bit or using it as a way to get back at yourself or hold it against yourself when really like, emotional your emotional response to things it like your emotions are obviously valid i'm not going to be like well your emotions don't really mean anything they do but at times like people who have like depression if they don't have the right amount of dopamine or like serotonin oxytocin uh any of those chemicals that kind of help you with your emotional responses it can kind of like affect your emotions where they can be a little too extreme or you're not able to feel like what you felt is the correct response that you should have. I'm trying to think of an example of this, but it's a little tough at the time. Um, for example, I know when I get really stressed out and anxious, I can get really irritable, but I don't, I'm not irritable because I'm like an angry person all the time. It's just I, because of my anxiety and depression, there are times that I get really stressed out where it's really difficult to think outside of the situation. And so when people come up to me about something that's not relevant to what I was stressed out about, it can like really set me off in a way because I don't know what to do. And so it's like your mind's constantly trying to 
re-grasp what's going on and it can get really frustrating and you're also really tired so it's just like a mess but that doesn't mean that I'm a angry and terrible person it just means like this emotional response was a result of something other than who I am it's my depression anxiety is not my personality control fallacies this would be kind of like internal and external validation where you think that if it was kind of like that whole mindset that I was talking about, I think, in the beginning episode and also a little bit in this first one, that things that I do, if I succeed, I can prove my worth. And so you try to take control of the situation or like pretty much everything in your life because you think that if you can control it, then prepared and you're set to go. And if something doesn't work out, then that's all your fault. And it's not necessarily your fault. Or you can kind of put like that external source of control where you don't believe that you have any control at all, which is the extreme opposite of what I was kind of saying. Well, all right, there's two different ways where you think that you can control everything and that's not quite the case, or you think that you can control nothing. So for example, someone who thinks that they can't control anything is like, I can't help that I was late, I slept through my alarm. When really you could have controlled that and it could have helped the situation and yes, people make mistakes, but you shouldn't really like hold that against you. But like, there's things that you can do in the future that could help that. Also, while we're on the subject uh, with control fallacies or this isn't quite related. I kind of related it to it in the beginning. But like external validation is like when you use other people's emotions to validate your own or other people's responses to tell yourself like how you should feel or like to prove yourself in a way. Uh, external validation, it can not only be like other people's emotions validating your own, but it can also like be used in like, say you hook up with a bunch of people as a way to like validate towards yourself that you have, that you're pretty or that you're able to be loved. And then that feelings that you get from external validation, it's not permanent. In fact, it's very temporary. And once it like falls back, you feel like you need another recharge and another form of validation to feel as if you know that your responses are correct or that you're enough. And so I kind of want to like bring that up so that people who I know I suffer from external validation a bunch, but just kind of being able to recognize that other people shouldn't affect the way that you feel about yourself. And once you realize that and you can recognize it, you can kind of navigate your thought process a little more. And that's the whole point of these mind traps. Once you recognize that you have this mentality, it's a lot easier once you recognize it to be like, oh, well, that's not necessarily true. Even though sometimes with anxiety, like even knowing that something isn't true doesn't always make it feel a lot better. But it is kind of a starting point and it definitely helps to like start somewhere rather than just giving up entirely. So... That's why I decided to go over these mind traps today. Speaking of which, the next one would be fallacies of fairness. This is like always needing to be right. If you kind of believe that life isn't fair, sometimes you feel like everything's out of your control. So it's kind of similar to that control fallacy. People always, like life isn't always fair. So like you can't really hold yourself against things that don't really work out, but you can't just be resentful or just giving up just because life isn't fair. And that's what this fallacy is kind of talking about a little bit. They have like a paragraph about this. So I'll just 
read it off since they probably can explain it a little bit better than I can. But uh, if you suffer from the fallacy of fairness, you often feel resentful because you think that you know what is fair and no one else is abiding by it. This may sound obvious to say, but life isn't always fair. People who go through life assessing whether something is fair or not will often end up feeling resentful, angry, and unhappy because of it. Because life isn't fair, things will not always work out in the person's favor, even when they should, even when they should, and it's something we all need to deal with. They go on to say that when someone falls into this trap, they tend to put other people on trial to prove that their own opinions and actions were absolutely correct. If you use this distortion, being wrong is unthinkable and you'll go to any length to prove that you are right. Often being right can be more important than the feelings of other people, even with close friends. If an oncoming car is in the wrong lane and about to hit you, do you stick to your guns and say, stay in your lane because you're right and they're wrong? So it's pretty much saying like you need to accept things for how they are. And this fallacy is like you self-sabotage relationships just for the sake of being right and having that control over the situation that you might not have. I believe that's pretty much all that I wanted to talk about in this episode. If you have any other mind traps or things that you recognize as to be a negative thought process that you can get yourself into, I would love to hear it and I can share it on another episode. Just email some of those other ideas or things that you've figured out through your own mental journey. Or if you have a listener story, I would love for you to email it to moralistory.podcast2021 at gmail.com. As a reminder, our Twitter is moralistorypodcast or moral underscore pod. I highly encourage you to donate to our Patreon. That way I can kind of do more things that involve the uh, listeners later on. And I plan on having little like bonus episodes and kind of discuss some of the other things that were talked about in the episodes with another person or doing little interviews. The website, I'll keep updates on on these episodes after they've gone. Like I know I've only wanted to have like a limited series for this podcast. And so as time goes on, if I want to add something or there's an addition to say mind traps or anything along those lines, I can add it to the website so that you can always have a resource that you can go back on as things change. You can find that link to the website in our Instagram, and our Instagram is moralistory.podcast. I highly encourage you to follow the Instagram. That's our main form of communication. I would have, like, giveaways, updates, any news or announcements on what's happening in this podcast and what's coming up would be all posted mostly on our Instagram. Just, like, as a reminder with, like, the mind traps that sometimes you can make things more difficult for yourself just because of the way that you were thinking. And so it's important to recognize some of those negative thoughts and kind of adjust your the way you think about things accordingly to make things a little easier to handle when you're facing a tough situation. This episode's quote is from Dorothy Rowe. Depression is a prison where you are both the suffering prisoner and the cruel jailer. And that's the moral of the story. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time.